0: Whether we are black or brown or white, we will make America great again.
1: Hi, Law. How are you? Hi, Adinaï. So you're driving through Pennsylvania right now. Uh, We're just a few days before the midterms. What are you looking for?
2: Well, you know, um, I'm in Pennsylvania because uh, I I decided that to cover these midterms elections, it would be a very good place to... Try to test the waters and and see what's going on, you know, in the deep country. Mm-hmm. Why Pennsylvania? Because Pennsylvania was uh, indeed one of the key states which actually shifted the election to, to Donald Trump. It's one of these lands which were, you know, the heartland of the country in terms of uh, uh, industry and um, which got very uh, uh, disindustrialized. Uh, during the last 20 years you know Mm -hmm. the the steel industry the textile and they were you have all these these uh, working class which feel up who feel absolutely abandoned and uh, they were overlooked by the democrats you have to to know that you know hillary clinton didn't campaign in pennsylvania because she took it for granted it was you know a very historically democratic land with a very strong presence of the union and suddenly you know trump sort of arrived and sort of uh, dived into uh, this uh, this region and and promised to to help these forgotten lands and these forgotten people he just mm-hmm. had a message for them and they just went to them they felt you know he represented what they are attached to because these lands are yes democratic uh, traditionally but they were very much attached to their guns their lands the flag they are religious So they felt uh, they could shift, you know, someone who who had promised to to give a voice for them. And what I I want to try to do is to actually see how two years after he was elected, uh, do they still uh, love Donald Trump as they did during the campaign or uh, have they, you know, sort of disappointed by these very, uh, you know, tumultuous two years.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it's going to be very interesting to to test that uh, on the ground. Yeah.
1: This podcast is called The New Civil War. Uh, what does that mean exactly for you?
2: I, I decided actually to, to, uh, to, to the, the tame the, the, the term political civil war because uh, it, there is such a huge divide in the country. You know, everyone is talking about it and there is a big apprehension, a big worry on both sides, but nobody seems to be willing at the same time to, to give in and to have some compromise uh, emerging. So you have on the one hand, you know, the, the Republican Party and um, on the other hand, the Democrats, but you have you know, the urban uh, voters and the rural voters. Mm-hmm. You have the, the people who uh, are, you know, in this, uh, believe that uh, have to push for you know more and more liberal values and the other ones you know sort of uh, trying to uh, to stick to their uh, traditional values uh, this uh, divide this huge divide was absolutely blatant during the Kavanaugh hearings mm-hmm. and uh, of course this whole campaign is under the uh, you know uh, sort of uh, uh, everyone is talking about it you know about you know should we uh, uh, defend women at all at all costs, even mm-hmm. if there are no proofs. Or, on the contrary, should we give men uh, man the benefit of the doubt and have due process? And there, there's a lot of talk, you know, on the campaign trade about these these issues. And uh, one of the questions is that there is a lot of uh, there are lots of incivilities, you know, some kind of violent or you know nearly violent uh, incidents all the time. Uh, a lot of rude words, brutal, uh, you know, assertions on both sides, and the question is, you know, is it going to get more violent? And there were, there was a statement recently by Rand Paul with a senator on the Republican side who had some problems. He was brutalized by one of his neighbors, uh, you know, a few months ago, and he, he even talked a few days ago of, is there going to be, is someone going to get killed? So... Uh, you know there is a is worry, and uh, I think it's interesting to explore the divide.
1: Tell us a little bit about the the first man that you you met, the one that we're going to listen to right now. Uh, it's a very good introduction to this program because it's Tom Ridge. Uh, he's a former governor and a member of Congress. He's a Republican, but he's not a Trump voter.
2: Exactly. I mean, Tom Ridge is an interesting character because he's a very colorful. Uh, Personality. He was the former governor of uh, Pennsylvania from uh, 1995 to 2000, 1994 to 2000, mm-hmm. and he's a, a very interesting uh, person because he has such huge political experience. You know, he was uh, a congressman for six uh, terms and then governor for two terms. He was in, in the military and was decorated during the Vietnam War. And, and he works in the Bush administration as the first secretary for Homeland Security. He actually created after nine eleven, the uh, Department for Homeland Security, which is a huge organization now. And he he's actually quite worried because this this uh, you know, Tom Ridge is, uh, was actually uh, uh, I would say probably a quite moderate Republican and he, he doesn't acknowledge Trump. He's actually a Rather, I would say an anti-Trump uh, guy. Although he says that you know he accepts the president, but um, he talks about a nearly tribal divide. He compares you know the the, the political divide in the U.S. to the fights in the Sunnis and the Shias, which is quite of a comparison. Yes. And he says that you know the uh, the the, the, the um, current politicians seem to be more eager to win than to govern, Mm -hmm. and don't seem to be able to cross, you know, uh, the line to uh, the other party in order to create compromises. And he sort of regrets it and reminds us that, you know, the American Constitution was actually written as a series of compromise when it was, you know, written yes. in fact Philadelphia. In uh, so it's a quite an interesting uh, nostalgic view and worried view on the current political process.
1: It is. Well let's listen to what he has to say about it and um we'll talk again soon, I guess tomorrow, right?
2: Yes, exactly. I talk to you
1: tomorrow. Perfect. Thank you very much, Law. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Well it's interesting to uh, phrase it that way um, because there have been times when America has been divided. Um, it was very divided after the Vietnam War. It uh, was uh, somewhat more divided, not as divided, but uh, the Clinton years there were a lot of issues that was uh, there was a divide uh, and from time to time there have been policy issues that created a division but the division was uh, 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 frankly, uh, a much shorter duration. This is a division that seems to be deeper and broader than we've seen in a long time. There is seems to be far less civility uh, these days. And but I'm probably viewing as a as a someone who participated in the 80s and the in the mid 90s and the 90s where I thought the general political environment was much more conducive to thoughtful engagement and compromise than it is today. But then you move forward and you see um, some new influences that didn't even exist in the 80s and 90s, ones the social media. It's difficult to assess what the impact was, political slash psychological, during a presidential race when the two candidates from the major parties had the highest level of unfavorability than we've seen in a long time. I mean, it's really rather remarkable how unpopular both candidates were. And they were between 65 and 70% in terms of their personal appeal to the broader spectrum of voters. So how that then translates with a president who, whose personality, whose use of social media uh, and his style has been so dramatically different than that which people have been accustomed to. Um, you create a, a very difficult environment for people to understand. And I just can say, for one, as an American citizen, hope it's temporary, hope it's an aberration, hope uh, that um, we can get back uh, to a much more civil engagement. The other observation I would make, and it'd be very interesting from your perspective, whether it relates to your leaders in France as well. But you know, when I was a young congressman or a governor, but a lot of the leaders on both sides of the aisle were of the World War II generation. There was a different mindset. I mean, when you think about the leaders, I think about the leaders that I dealt with. They had lived during a time uh, where the the cause, the challenges, were so much more meaningful as a country than the individual. they, they, they we use the expression oftentimes, "a cause greater than yourself." Well, they lived through a time where the need to find common ground, the need to work together, the need uh, to address collectively, regardless of party, some of the challenges facing Uh, We're looking to win at all costs. It's almost a uh, Sunni-Shia antagonism. But if both parties become so ideological that compromise is impossible, I dare say that this form of democracy may not lend itself to uh, compromise, and I find that regrettable because the Constitution itself is a series of compromises. And it was a series of compromises, people come in with different economic interest, and regional interest, and personal interest. But they figured out a way that, in order to get this country pulled together, you better compromise on some of these issues. And then, of course, you had the uh, the, the, the first ten amendments and the like. So I just. We really, and the other challenge I think we have is both parties are so convinced that they need to win. They've almost forgotten that once you win, you're supposed to govern, and I think that's a real challenge for both parties right now. I really do. Um, What I really lament right now is the disproportionate impact of uh, social media, and I hope it's an aberration. Hope it's temporary. But the people in government seem more interested in winning than they do in governing. I mean, I've always felt that, I mean, I'm a very competitive man. I had eight races. I won all eight. But politics is supposed to be a means to an end. You run to win, but you choose to run to win in order to govern. And I think, and this is a cast a deep shadow over my own party, but I will say this with, quite, with candor and with disappointment, For three election cycles, the Republican Party used its opposition to Obamacare as a political tool. We used it to lever fairly good electoral results. You elect us, we're going to change Obamacare. But we used it to win but we weren't prepared to govern. Again, this is just Tom Ridge citizen speaking, but, you know, we don't, we have a system of government based on a constitution that was a series of compromises. If the parties become more ideological, then maybe we should have a prime minister and a parliament, because the system is really not designed, isn't designed to have this stalemate, and I think the House is going to go to Democrat. I mean, we've done very little in the first two years, and it's very difficult to imagine regular order or anything in the next two years other than stalemate, controversy, mean-spirited attacks, personal attacks, and very little governing. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think it could have happened. I mean, I don't know. But if you look back at the last two or three confirmations of Supreme Court judges, they used to have bipartisan support. And I think the real victim of the Kavanaugh hearings, although I think There were plenty of victims, including Kavanaugh, including the accuser, accusing the Senate, particularly was the Supreme Court that was the ultimate victim because it is, well, it is understandable that most Americans who, one, don't pay too much attention to the Supreme Court and appreciate its critical role in the separation of powers, I suspect that most viewed understood that conservative presidents would appoint conservative judges, more liberal presidents, but it was never viewed in such a sharp, with, with a sharp political, through a sharp political prism, than it was during the Kavanaugh hearings. And I think that undermines, that potentially undermines in the future, um, uh, credi- undermining its credibility, but it just t- takes some of the luster off that, that third branch of government that I think has been so critical to this continuing experiment of democracy that we have in this country. I think it. And I think part of it was, um, from the Democrat side, uh, I think there, re- there is residual bitterness and disappointment that President Obama's last nominee wasn't given a hearing, so you understand the angst there, um, and that probably had as much to do with that opposition. But also, don't think it was a very good day for the Senate when you've got senators of the in, members of the United States Senate looking at notes inscribed in a high school yearbook as a means of attack. It's pretty demeaning, in my judgment. So it was not a it was not a good day for the process itself, and. Uh, the ultimate victim, I think, is really the Supreme Court. I don't think the base has grown, but the enthusiasm and the support for him, that fervor, is at least, for most of them, is at least as strong as it was two years ago. But I think those who are uncertain, those Democrats, those independents that wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, shake things up, I think you're going to see a lot of movement away from him. And when you think about it, won Pennsylvania by 40,000 votes. She never campaigned out of Philadelphia. Uh, She lost Wisconsin by 10,000 votes. She never went to Wisconsin. I mean, I I don't wish anyone ill, but I think if they were going to write a book as to why Hillary Clinton lost the election, it could have been one page. It would have been a photographer over her shoulder. She could be looking in the mirror. The reason she lost is how she conducted the campaign, and she almost felt like she was... This ran a horrible campaign. I thought they were both flawed. Most governors, R's and D's, and we may come philosophically have a different way of how you solve a problem, uh, but it is a democracy. You don't solve problems by executive order, and you don't solve the immigration problem by calling Mexicans rapists. You don't solve immigration problems by building walls, and you don't solve that uh, by uh, offending on a repeated basis the leaders of an ally and a neighbor in Mexico, so you get. You have to think holistically, and there's just there's where I go back to where my party uses some of these issues as leverage because it appeals to a certain base, and I understand nobody should be unhappy with illegal immigration. I mean, my God, look what's going on in Europe. I mean, it's tearing the EU apart. But if it's a if it's a if it's an issue that's problematic. Is continuing to talk about the problem in a very divisive way. So again, we're back to that. Oh, Obamacare was bad. Like will change it. Immigration is bad, but but we're not looking to change it. We gotta deal with the deficit. I just disappointed that since we've controlled both chambers and the presidency, we haven't able to do more consistently with what I thought were some of the basic premises of our of our party. That's a strong uh, European, U.S. relationship, strong NATO relationship. Would know, I as a citizen like NATO to pay more you bet. Uh, there are ways you leverage and have the conversations, but you don't call out your friends, particularly your friends who have been responsible in large measure for building this world order that has provided fairly substantial stability for all of the world. Now, yes, there's there's flare-ups, there was Vietnam, there's this, there's that, but you got to admit, post World War II, with the strength of democracies, with some of these international organizations, which are imperfect by definition, but they they've served the world pretty well. And all of a sudden, you become an antagonist toward those institutions and to your allies. That's troubling to me. That is, from my judgment, that's that's that's, that's a real serious uh, m- miscalculation by our president. He out-campaigned her. He was everywhere, and she was not. You know, one of the biggest challenges in life is showing up. And if you show up, and there's, even in his own bizarre, mean-spirited way, and I think he's mean-spirited in many regards, he was able to relate to a lot of people who thought government had forgotten him and that this place wasn't doing, that Washington wasn't doing its job. His casual. Casual and being kind to diplomatic attitude toward women writ large is something that I thought would certainly turn off a lot more women than it did. I trust me, I don't know. No matter what he said, it seemed to have very little impact on the voter, which I think to a certain extent if you think about it shows you how unhappy or disappointed they were with the political with Washington D C. I think people be very careful before they read this into a blue anti-Trump wave.